All humility aside, think of a moment where you were pretty proud of yourself. Maybe you closed a huge sale or you stuck a difficult landing. Maybe you figured out the solution to a challenging medical problem. You finally reached the one kid you never thought you would. Or you de-escalated a situation that it could have quickly gotten out of hand. And you had a little bit of that, I'm really good at this moment. Now, not to kill the mood, but think for a minute of something that you did that you're embarrassed of. Maybe you dropped the ball on something. Maybe you betrayed a relationship. Maybe you lied. Or you said something that you knew would damage another person. What I've learned of human nature makes me believe that it was easier to come up with the embarrassing moment than the proud one. I think our weaknesses loom more largely in front of us than our strengths do. And today we've got a story of strength and weaknesses. All the stories that we've been telling are universal. So there's something for us to learn in this story about how our strengths and weaknesses can and do play out in life, and also about how God works. So there's a lot of ground to cover today. We're gonna to look at the Samson story and look at it in a nutshell. A little bit of context first. So last week, Angela preached about Moses leading the people up out of Egypt through the Red Sea. And then we have the book of Joshua where they're supposed to take possession of the land. And as they do, the land is divided among the 12 tribes of Israel. Eventually they get a king, but before that, you've got this loose confederation of tribes that are led by chiefs or judges, and that's how it gets its name. And because they didn't do a good job of clearing out the land, there's a lot of fighting between the Israelites and neighboring countries. Now, let's be honest, these are difficult stories. Issues of genocide, taking land that already belonged to someone else, that's rough stuff. And we are and should be really sensitive to those things. Over the last couple of weeks, though, we've talked about how to interpret these stories. And the worst thing to do is to take our 21st century grid and place it on them and say, that's horrible, I'm just ignore the whole thing. But let's not turn our brains off either. So let's go with what we know and not so much with what we can't figure out or understand. Now in this particular story, the conflict is with the Philistines. These are some of what was called the Sea Peoples because they came from the sea, probably from Greece. And they're mentioned in texts from the reign of Ramses III in the 12th century BC. So we are firmly in historical times now. There's some disagreement about exactly when Judges is, but let's say between the 10th and 13th century BC. And then there's also this thing going on that's called the cycle of judgment. It's most notably in Deuteronomy, but it continues throughout the Old Testament. And basically it is follow God and you'll be blessed. Don't follow God and there are consequences for that. And we still sort of expect that, but we have a different idea of what blessings are. When we think of blessings, we think of money, awesome vacations, spa visits, sport tickets, good health. But the blessing that's promised is that we walk with God and God walks with us. Remember, that's like the beginning and the end of the book. It's where we came from and it's where we're headed. The blessing is the presence of God with us in a broken world and the assurance that God is at work. So the setup for the story is in Judges chapter 3, verse 1. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, so the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. That's that judgment. A certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites, one of the 12 tribes, had a wife who was childless, unable to give birth. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You're barren and childless, but you're going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. 
Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink and that you do not eat anything unclean. You will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a Nazarite, dedicated to God from the womb. He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. A Nazarite's a person who's taken a vow to dedicate themselves to God. In this instance, God chose Samson because he had a specific task for him. And that's not all that unusual. In Jeremiah 1.5, he says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. And in Psalm 139, 13, and 16, it says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. I also think we can fit ourselves in there. God also has a plan and a purpose for our lives, not just to make us happy, it's to use us to help him change the world, like the call of the prophets, and we gotta keep that in mind. Now, what's with the hair? Well, it was a visual reminder. You knew you were a Nazarite, and so did everyone else. I just came back from a fishing trip, and I was talking to a dude who wasn't a Christian, and eventually he found out that I was a pastor. And he was around a bunch of other Christian people who told everybody that they were Christians, everybody could see it, and his take on it was, I wish that everybody who claimed to be a Christian would act lovingly towards other people instead of being so filled with hatred. Samson's hair was a sign that he was a follower of God. Everybody could see it. We give off signs who are followers of God too, but what do they see from us? Samson's hair is a symbol that he's a Nazarite and has made a vow to God. What the text doesn't say is what Samson's special gift is, but it's that he gets superhuman power. So Judges 13 is all about God's plan for Samson. In Judges 14, he sees a young Philistine woman, and his parents are horrified. They're like, don't marry outside of the faith, which is really good advice. But in verse 4, it tells us that God actually uses this. It's maybe not great judgment on Samson's part, but God is still able to use it for his purpose. In verse eight, Samson comes across a lion that's dead, but he notices that there's honey inside of it, and he scoops out the honey and eats it. He's not supposed to touch unclean things, so he trades God's blessing for honey. And then in verse 10, he's together with a bunch of guys, and alcohol may have been involved, but the competition about riddles gets out of hand. And ultimately, he ends up humiliating this group of guys, and they don't appreciate that very much. So it sets up the conflict for the rest of the story. So in Judges 15, Samson takes 300 foxes and uses them to burn all of the crops of the Philistines. Then he takes a jawbone of a donkey and he kills a thousand men. Samson had clearly not read how to win friends and influence people. And then at the beginning of chapter 16, he rips off the city gates and carries it away. So if we've learned anything about Samson at this point, it's that he has incredible strength and also incredible weaknesses. And then in Judges 16, verse 4, sometime later, he fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, see if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him. So we may tie him up and subdue him. Each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. 
So Delilah said to Samson, tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. Very subtle. The story records three times she asks him this question, and three times he lies to her about what will make him lose his strength. And each time she does what he says, ties him up or whatever, and then the Philistine soldiers jump out from behind the curtains. And because he hadn't really lost his strength, he fights them off. And finally, on the fourth time, he tells her the truth. Now, it's impossible not to read the story and marvel at this. Did she have some incredible control over him? Was he so smitten that he couldn't see that people kept leaping out of the shadows to kill him when he was at her house? Verse 17, so he told her everything. No razor has ever been used on my head, he said, because I have been a Nazarite dedicated to God from my mother's womb. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me and I would become as weak as any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her everything, she sent word to the rulers of the Philistines, come back once more, he's told me everything. So the rulers of the Philistines returned with the silver in their hands. After putting him to sleep on her lap, she called for someone to shave off the seven braids of his hair and so began to subdue him and his strength left him. Then she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Then the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes and took him down to Gaza, binding him with bronze shackles they sent him to grind grain in the prison. So let's make a few points about this. First, God is at work. He understood their geopolitical situation. People were suffering from the oppression of the Philistines and God saw it. God was at work building a people for himself in fulfillment of the promises that he'd made to Abraham. God also understands our geopolitical situation. He's still at work, drawing us into the good future that he has for us. God's at work at the global level, but also at the personal level. God's working among the nations. God's also working in our lives. And believing that is a game changer. I don't know if the truth is that most people are agnostic. I think that most people are deists. They believe that God created stuff and then wandered away. But this isn't the way God is portrayed in the Bible. Even amidst all of the craziness of our time, God is in control not Vladimir Putin or Kim Jong-un or Donald Trump or Joe Biden. God is in control. Now, there's a fine line between letting God take it all and helping God out too much. What we're searching for is the sweet spot of seeing what God is doing and getting on board with that. And oftentimes it helps to pray, God, where are you at work here? Next, God uses broken people. Samson is a strong man with a weak will. He deals with rage issues and with lust. He's driven by his emotions. He, he assumes his bad choices won't catch up to him. I can do whatever I want. I'm Samson. I can get away with anything. And that's why I think with Delilah, four times he tells her stuff. Is he stupid? No, he thinks he can handle it. And that's a formula for disaster. I don't need God. I don't need anyone else. I can handle anything. Really? I've known a lot of tough people, and they all have their breaking point. Sometimes it's cancer. Sometimes it's the breakup of a relationship. Sometimes it's a tragedy that happens to a friend or a family member. We need other people. Life catches up to us. I talk to hiring managers. They will find that video from college on social media. We need people to tell us not to post that stuff, or even better, not to do it in the first place. And remember the fact 
that God uses broken people is not an excuse for spiritual laziness or sin. In Romans 6, it says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means, for we have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Next, God keeps his promises. This is so foundational to who we are. We might be unfaithful, but God never will be. After every way that Samson had failed, God was still faithful to him. God could still be trusted to do what he said that he can do. And God can still use us. Verse 22 picks up the story. But the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now the rulers of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to celebrate, saying, Our god has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. When the people saw him, they praised their god, saying, Our god has delivered our enemy into our hands, the one who laid waste our land and multiplied our slain. While they were in high spirits, they shouted, Bring Samson out to entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he performed for them. When they stood him among the pillars, Samson said to the servant who held his hand, Put me where I can feel the pillars that support the temple, so that I may lean against them. Now the temple was crowded with men and women. All the rulers of the Philistines were there, and on the roof were about 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more, and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines from my two eyes. Then Samson reached towards the two central pillars on which the temple stood, bracing himself against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he pushed with all his might, and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more when he died than when he lived. This story is filled with such pathos, but also with hope. Here's Samson, utterly humiliated. I think about how I'd feel. I like to make people laugh. I don't like to be laughed at. My life, for the most part, has gone along pretty well. But I've also had times of being broken, and it's not pleasant. Imagine being Samson, being led in and hearing the jeers. Bring Samson out to entertain us. It's not like they expected him to do a little stand-up routine. They probably made sure that he tripped multiple times on his way in. They probably threw things at him and watched him wince and bleed when he didn't see the rock coming. And Samson has a moment of clarity. He realizes that he's failed. Samson had a huge gift, and in many ways he had squandered it. But he asks God to use him one last time, and he trusts that God will. There's so much there. There's some repentance, some faith, some resolve to be available to God, some desire to finish well. And I think we can find ourselves in there also. Maybe we look back and realize that we missed our kids growing up because we were working or playing too much. Maybe we had opportunities to serve or help other people and they're gone because we were too preoccupied with our own happiness or whatever was going on in our lives. Maybe there's a depth of relationships with, with Jesus that never happened because by the time we did everything else we wanted to, there was no time left. Maybe we have kids who wandered away from the faith because we never really showed them by our lives that it was very important to us. I know looking back at my kids, I think, did I do enough? Was I there enough? We all have regrets. But as investment managers like to say, past performance 
doesn't guarantee future results. The past is past. God has a future and a hope for you. You might have royally screwed up when your kids were little, but it's not too late to start being the dad or mom you wished that you had been. I heard a story the other day about a businessman who I respect deeply. And somebody was telling me of his reputation for cheating and lying and cutting any corner possible. And I was stunned. And I said, that's his reputation now? And they said, oh no. Once he came to know Jesus, everything changed. You might not have yesterday. You have no idea how many tomorrows you have. But God has given you today. You might feel like you're too old or too young. Nope. Pray the prayer, God use me. Some of our most senior members, like the late 80s and early 90s club, are some of the most joyful, faithful people I know. I intentionally talk with them on Sundays because I walk away being so encouraged. Too old to be used by God? I don't think so. I have an origami frog on the windowsill of my office that was given to me by Timmy Erickson. I think he was eight when he made it for me. Too young to be used by God? I don't think so. Gig Harbor is still a relatively small community, and I regularly hear stories about members of this church who are just out living their lives, trying to honor Jesus, and people see how they live, and they tell me about it. I hear stories about how people see a difference in your lives. You may never know how your little bits of faithfulness here and there make a difference. This is a story of strengths and weaknesses. There's a couple of options when we look at our strengths and weaknesses. We can believe that our strengths are so strong that our weaknesses don't matter. We can also believe that our weaknesses are debilitating. Neither of those are good options for those of us who want to follow Jesus. We want to bring our God-given strengths and talents to the table, but we also want to acknowledge our weakness, grow in those areas, and trust that God will use us while we are in process. I was thinking about this song from ages ago. It says, God uses ordinary people. He chooses people just like me and you who are willing to do what he commands. God uses people that will give him all, no matter how small your all may seem to you, because little becomes much as you place it in the master's hand. So as we're looking at these stories of origin, what do we learn? We learn that God is at work, that God uses broken people, that God keeps his promises, and that God can still use us. So let me ask you three questions. What call does God have on your life? What can you change in your life today so that it doesn't end up being a regret later? And what keeps you from feeling like God can use you?